We'll hear argument now on number 91-1523, the Florence County School District 4 versus Shannon Carter et al. Mr. Ayer. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the Burlington decision, this Court recognized that one of the judicial remedies available for a school district's failure to provide an education meeting the requirements of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act is reimbursement of the child's parents for the cost of removing their child from the public school and putting he or she into a private school uh, that provides an education that is proper under the Act. The Court in Burlington explained that conclusion in part on the ground that where parents select a private school placement that is found to be, quote, proper under the Act, the award of such reimbursement does nothing more than pay the parents the cost that should have been paid initially uh, by the public school for the placement that should have been provided in the first place. The issue provided, uh, presented in this case uh, is whether, as the court below held, this right to reimbursement under Burlington uh, arises wherever the private placement selected by the parents ultimately proves to be beneficial to the child, or rather whether such placements are constrained, as are all other placements under the Individuals uh, with Disabilities Education Act, by the obligation to provide a free, appropriate public education which is defined precisely and specifically in the Act. Well, Mr. Ayers, the, um, it's defined, I guess, in, in Section 1401. 1401A18, Your Honor. And do you think that that uh, provision uh, is applicable at all to private placements? It seems to well, Your Honor, I, really I, state placements. I, I think, I think the place... provision of it. The place to begin in thinking about it is, is with the initial section of the Act, which states the purpose of the Act. And it states that purpose very explicitly in terms of assuring that all children with disabilities will have available to them a free, appropriate public education. That is the overriding, the primary purpose. The court recognized that in in Burlington. Okay, I, I, I recognize that, and I'd like you to tell us, if you will, where in the statute specifically uh, it covers a private placement, or whether this is just something by way of a remedy that the courts have developed under the Act. Well, the, the, the statute does not explicitly provide for the Burlington remedy either. Uh, and so the, the fact that there is a remedy there is something that is recognized as necessary to accomplish the purposes of the Act. Uh, so I can't, I can't point to something specifically that limits a remedy that is not explicitly dealt with in the statute. What I think I can do... Matt, if, if, if you insist upon free, appropriate public education, there is no private placement. Well, I, I, I would disagree The only thing you that. can do is, is, to, is to send the person to a public school. Wouldn't that have to be your position? Well, the, the, the public aspect, I think, has two parts within the definition. One is that it be at public expense, and that is certainly possible. Uh, and the other... Well, there's three, I guess. The other is that it... One other is that it meets state standards. Uh, oh. That's a dispute in this case. And then the third is that it be under uh, public supervision. Well, you're, you're willing to acknowledge that it doesn't have to be under public supervision, that that's not well, I, free, I, appropriate, what an appropriate public education means, right? Justice Scalia, I, th- I think it depends how you define public supervision. I think the Act plainly contemplates and um, placements go forward, I think, on a regular basis in private schools uh, where the public school authorities nonetheless are involved in that process. They're involved in helping to prepare a, a, an individual educational program, uh, and that, I think, fairly 
uh, satisfies the requirement of public supervision. Mr. Ayer, uh, you made, a, I think, a very helpful and candid concession in your reply brief in which you say there are situations that would be an exception to this strict Burlington requirement that it must be a place that is approved by the district. And I'd like to call your attention to page 9 of your reply brief, where you said in the second full paragraph that the court should, courts should not allow FAPE's educational standards and IEP requirement to foreclose unreasonably the pursuit of educational opportunity through the unilateral parent placement process recognized in Burlington. So you seem in that um, passage to be recognizing that there are cases where there can be deviations from both the IEP requirement, the FAPE educational standards. So doesn't this controversy then boil down to whether this case fits that description. Correct, Your Honor. And in this case, there was no list supplied by the public school authorities as there was in Burlington. Well, so why isn't that enough to make it exceptional? Well, why shouldn't there be a burden um, on the public system to say to the parents, here is a list of approved private facilities. Well, Your Honor, there's, there's certainly nothing in the statute that dictates uh, in what manner the public school authorities are, are required to be cooperative with the parents. It might be that they have a list prepared. In some states they do. If they have such a list, in all likelihood it's going to be necessary for the parents to go to somebody and ask for it. If there is no list, uh, it is in the same way necessary for the parents to go to someone, perhaps, and ask the question, Here's what I'd like to do under my Burlington rights. I, wa I want to put the child in a private school. Can you tell me whether this facility meets, meets standards? We would have a different case here if what had happened was uh, the parents had done that and been given either no answer or been given an answer which is, we won't cooperate with you, we won't help you. That might be a case where you could say that the realization uh, of the free appropriate public education simply couldn't realistically be accomplished here, even though the parents tried to do it. The, the fundamental... It comes down to who has the burden of uh, inquiry, or it's a question of whether the public uh, authority has to supply either a list or a procedure, and you say no, the parent has to ask, and if the parent doesn't ask, then there is effectively... Uh, no recourse for the parent, even though the very first step that in, in this case is a given, that is, the public authority has not been able to provide the education that the statute requires. Well, Justice Ginsburg, I, I'd like to take a couple of steps back, because I think uh, you only get to the, to the issue that you are raising, which is whether or not it is essentially not possible to accomplish, not possible for the parents and the private school to accomplish the objective of the statute. Uh, you only get to that point after you impose an initial requirement, uh, presumptively at least, that a free appropriate public education is an objective to which the parents must make some efforts, uh, which they make, must make some efforts to achieve. And I want to just talk briefly to this question of how, how the statute operates and the fact, first of all, what I, what I mentioned earlier, that this is a statute that perhaps unusually has as its stated primary purpose 
not the elevation of educational quality for disabled students, not some general objective like that. The primary purpose of this statute, as it states in its own language, uh, is the assurance that all children with disabilities uh, will have available a free, appropriate public education. What is may, may I just interrupt you there? Isn't, isn't the point that the, the statute or, or the conditions that we're concerned with here are all conditions which are intended to be for the benefit of the students? It's to make sure that the kids with disabilities do not get stuck down in some, um, uh, some uh, second-rate uh, status. Uh, and if the, if the purpose of the, the various conditions that are in question here are for the benefit of the students, uh, then under Burlington, uh, isn't it at least possible for the students or the parents of the students to waive those uh, or to, uh, you might say, ignore them uh, so that uh, that waiver or ignoring of them would not be a per se disqualification to reimbursement? Well, I, I, have, not, I have not heard... I have not seen or heard of that notion uh, in the cases, uh, Justice Souter. Um, it, it is the case, I think, that parents can take their child out of the public system and pay for a private school education on their own. Let me, if, if, if I may interrupt you do, you, do you claim that either of the conditions in question here, uh, either the, the requirement of an IEP uh, or the requirement of cert teacher certification is for the benefit of anyone other than the students? No, I, I think it is, it is for the benefit of the students. It, it is so that if, the, if then the students or their parents say, well, we'll waive those uh, so long as we can get, uh, a, uh, an, a, a, in fact, uh, a, uh, an adequate education elsewhere, why shouldn't they be allowed to waive them and why should their waiver be a bar to reimbursement? Well, essentially, I think this goes directly to the question of whether state educational authorities were intended under the Act to be left in the primary role with regard to the making of educational policy. Uh, exactly, exactly or, or, or to put it differently, whether the IEP and the FAPE requirements were put there out of mistrust of the parents or out of mistrust of, of school authorities. It seems to me they were put there to make sure that the school authorities did not give the disabled child second-rate treatment. You really think Congress was worried about the parents giving their disabled child second-rate treatment, putting them in, in a private placement that would be no good for them? Your, Your Honor, I, I, think that, I think that what, uh, what Congress intended to do was to uh, create a mechanism that relied on essentially three different factors to assure the quality of education. And I don't think that they assumed that parents were, in, many, in most instances, the best judges of what would be a quality of education. The best judge is going to be the judge uh, in a contested case for reimbursement afterwards, or if not the best judge, an adequate judge. I, I mean, the scheme that the other side is, is claiming does not leave them... Uh, in, in the unreviewable driver's seat? Well, it, 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 the standard that is applied, as I was saying just now, that there are three elements, essentially, that the statute puts in place, and I would submit they work like the legs of a stool to elevate together the quality of education. One of them is the requirement that state educational standards be met in the educations provided to disabled students. And I think that's very important because what was happening before was that disabled students were in many instances simply being pushed aside or being given a clearly inferior education. So the notion is not that we are going to tell the states what policies to put in place, but that we're going to require that they treat disabled students no less favorably than they treat uh, uh, non-disabled students. The second is the IEP process, which in this statute was very explicitly spelled out. This is not 
if you read through the language of it, a, a general reference to the notion that and there should be some sort of discussion between the parents and the school officials. This is a very explicit set of requirements which Congress believed uh, was necessary in conjunction with the other factors that it was putting into the statute in order to accomplish the result. Contending that, the, that what went on at this Trident School, it wasn't an IEP, but there were, what was it, goal settings and I think more frequent reviews, that that wasn't a reasonable substitute? Is the IEP so much more intense? Well, Your, Your Honor, I, I, think, I think it is perfectly clear from the Court of Appeals decision that the Court of Appeals did not view what went on at Trident as complying with the Act, because it says explicitly that. It wasn't an IEP. It wasn't an IEP. There was a setting of goals for this student to achieve, and an evaluation whether the student of the student's progress periodically. That's correct. Not. And I'm asking you in, in terms of uh, quality, had, was it substantially less effective in measuring the child's progress well, than the IEP? Well, what, what, is, what is missing from that, that you, from what you've described, and I think, uh, Your Honor, you have accurately described what is in the decisions in terms of what kind of process there is. There is absolutely no discussion of a critical part of the IEP process, which is a cooperative interaction, a give and take between the parents and the school. There is no discussion of a written statement of the services to be provided. Um, what, what, what does a parent, what is a parent supposed to do when a school district such as your client has failed to provide the IEP, the FAPE, and, and, and what the statute requires, but there happens to be no, no alternative school around that works via an IEP? And the parent finds the best school available, say, you know, the, the school district has failed me, has violated the statute, I'm going to do the best I can for my kid. Well, and, and, and there happens to be no private school who is willing to go through all of the fault or all of an IEP, or they think an IEP is really not the best way to do it. That parent has no remedy. No, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily the case, Your Honor. I, I, think, I, I think that this raises the question of... Uh, what, in what kind of circumstances might an exception be made to the, uh, to the, the free appropriate public edu education requirement? Mr. Ayer, did I take it that your answer to the question I asked you before was that if these parents had inquired, if they had only inquired, tell us a school, and they got no answer, then you would say, yes, then they would be entitled to reimbursement. Well, is, the, is the whole thing come down to whether the state has to provide them with a list or a process to find out what would be an acceptable school or whether the parents have to initiate the inquiry in the first place? I, I don't think it comes down to that, Your Honor. I, I think the, the, the first issue must be whether the holding of the Court of Appeals decision, which is that the free appropriate public education requirement is entirely inapplicable in the Burlington context with the one exception of the requirement that the education provide uh, educational benefit. Well, let me ask you the question in a different way, and if I, this is the way I see it, and if I'm wrong, please tell me. The school system has not been able to provide the child with the education that the statute requires. That's a given. What is the remedy for the parent? In, in this case? In, in, in this any case, case, the school system has not done what the statute requires. The parents then have a child in need of an education. What is the remedy 
Well, or the default on the part of the public school system. The, the parents have the right to remove the child, as was indicated from in Burlington, to remove the child from the public school and find an alternative placement. And the that's issue what here, the parents did. The issue here is whether, in doing so, the parents uh, nonetheless are governed by the requirement of the Act and the primary purpose of the Act, which was to, is to achieve a free, appropriate public education. Well, let's, let's go back to the purpose again, because I don't think you've answered one of the questions that we keep asking, and that is, for whose benefit are these conditions which collectively make up the purpose? Uh, the, 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 the benefit of the stay-put provision in Burlington was, was supposedly, or was, was, was treated as being the object of the, the, the stay-put provision, uh, was being to serve the children so that they did not get sidetracked into, into uh, some uh, inappropriate class while the fight was going on about what to do. Isn't the benefit of the, uh, the object, rather, of the, of the two provisions that you were most concerned with in making up the collective purpose of this statute also uh, to benefit the children. It is primarily to benefit the children. All right. Isn't that a relevant fact, then, in deciding uh, to what extent those conditions may be waived and to what extent they may be waived consistently with the purpose of the statute? It, it is a relevant fact, Your Honor. I think, first, with regard to the requirement of meeting state standards, that whereas the primary purpose is to benefit the children, a secondary purpose, which is made explicit in the statute and which this Court has recognized, uh, is, is to leave state authorities as the primary authorities in determining educational standards. That purpose is frustrated by the result that's been reached here. What if you can't uh, satisfy each of them? Which, which purpose wins out? I don't think, I think that's a false hypothesis, Your Honor. I don't, I well, it is, it, it is if you were correct that the conditions are, are in effect uh, enforceable conditions uh, without any possibility of waiver. That is, well, I, 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 but that in effect assumes the, the answer to the question that's before the court. I think on the IEP requirement that um, the statute, any fair reading of the statute, uh, does not contemplate that in a usual setting in a public school, uh, that if the parents and the teachers sit down and the parents and the school authorities sit down and they say, well, now we're going to be funding this under uh, the IDEA, but you just assume not do an IEP, wouldn't you? We just assume not write one. You just assume not have one. Uh, let's just forget about it, and we'll go ahead and fund this with federal money without complying with the requirements of the statute. I do not believe that that's consistent with what the authors of the statute had in mind. Uh, Mr. Ayer, a little while ago you told me, started to tell us about a three-legged stool. Yes. You told us what the first two legs well, were, but you never got to the third. Would well, you tell me what it is? Yes. The, the third leg is uh, the standard of what, uh, what constitutes a, an appropriate education, as the word is used in the Act. And, and in Rowley... Uh, got the first two already. What were the first two? The, the, the first two legs, Your Honor, were the requirement that the education meet state educational standards. The second was that it be provided in compliance with the IEP requirement. And the third is that it, it be, quote, appropriate. Now, this court in Raleigh, in considering what constitutes an appropriate education, uh, focused on the fact that there are uh, other procedural and other requirements under the Act and adopted a standard... Uh, which I think by any uh, fair reading is a fairly low-level standard. That is to say, it is simply a question of whether the education was capable or, or calculated to provide educational benefit. Uh, that in itself, I think, plainly is not uh, an effective support to a statute that's trying to elevate the quality of disabled children's education. The statute has in mind something else. It has in mind these things working together uh, it has in mind, under the educational standard requirement, essentially a non-discrimination provision. 
that says you can't treat the disabled children worse than you treat the other children. If you have teachers certified in the areas they're teaching uh, for other children, you've got to have similar kinds of certification. And that's the certification point, which is at issue here, is a very significant part of the statute. It's, it's addressed specifically in the regulations and in the statute, uh, indicating at one point in the statute, I think it's 1413A14, talks about, with regard to disabled children, if you are not hiring teachers in accordance with the highest standards in the state, number one, you're supposed to do that for disabled children, and if you're not, you've got to give an explanation as to what you're doing to get up to that standard. Push it. Go on. I'm sorry. Oh, no. go, go, go. I took the yeah. lesson. Your, your argue, if Burlington hadn't been decided, you'd be making essentially the same argument with respect to the stay-put provision, wouldn't you? Um, I, I, wouldn't that be uh, essential to, for example, the maintenance of, of uh, control of a public education uh, and, and assuring that the public educational authorities would see that the kid did not get sidetracked into a second-rate classroom while they were fighting over what to do? I mean, you'd be making the same argument. Well, I mean, before, before Burlington was decided. Yeah. Well, I, I can't tell you what I would be. I'm, I wasn't involved in that case, and I don't know what I'd be arguing. It's not the same case as this case. Well, isn't, isn't the logic essentially the same? Uh, and, I mean, I, I, I don't see how uh, you, you can argue in the face of Burlington, consistently with the Burlington logic, uh, that these provisions are, are so obviously non, non-waivable or non-malleable. And as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, I thought in your reply brief you were conceding as much. Well, I, I would just again ask the question, are, 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 do we believe that they are waivable in the context of, of a public school placement? You the- told me that, if, that this would be a different case if these parents had inquired of the school system, is there a place that satisfies your requirement where we can put our child. It, it, and it, you said it, that what the case comes down to is that the parents failed to make that inquiry. I didn't, Your Honor, I did not mean to say it would come out a different way. It would be a different case because it would have triggered a different process. Does this school district have either a list of approved places or does it have a procedure that parents can use to find out? It, it doesn't have a list, and, and whether or not it has a procedure in terms of a way that parents could get that information, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is that any effort was, no effort was taken. The procedure would be to pick up the phone Why and ask the question. Why if, if, the, if the, the school district is in default because it has not provided the required education, why shouldn't it be incumbent on the school system to show that indeed it has a procedure rather than putting the burden on the family that has not gotten what the statute entitles it to. Why shouldn't it be the school system's responsibility to say either we maintain a list or we maintain a procedure so that the parents will have an effective remedy? Well, I think this is a case where what occurred was that while the review process under the statute was going forward, the parents completely on their own and without any conversation with the school and without telling the school district authorities that they were doing it before they did it. They, took the chi- they applied to the Trident School, they took the child out of the school, and they put her in the, into the Trident School. So that this is not a situation where the... They took a big risk in doing that. I mean, it may well be that when they came to apply for reimbursement and the school district resisted it, uh, a court would have found, well, the Trident School is really not a very good school. And since you didn't uh, provide substantially what the Act wanted, we're not going to allow reimbursement. That, that, that's a big risk for the parents. Why isn't that risk enough? Once the school district has, has 
failed to meet up meet its obligation, the parent has the right, if the parent wants to take the chance, to send the kid to any school at all. If the school doesn't meet up to, uh, uh, to fulfill the obligation substantially of the act, the parent gets no reimbursement. That's a substantial sanction. But I don't know why the parent has to... Well, you know, the school, the school board had its chance, decided not to provide these services, and, and uh, it seems to me it, it, it falls back into the lap of the parent. Your Honor, I, I, think, that's an, I think it's a bit of an over, oversimplification to say that they decided not to provide the services. The bottom line is there's been a finding that what they offered wasn't meeting the, the standards under the Act. The, the one answer I would give goes back to what is the explicit purpose of the Act, and Congress must have had something in mind when it said that it wants to assure a free, appropriate public education to all children. Well, Mr. Ayer, we, we take this case on the assumption that the public school failed to provide the free, appropriate public school education. I mean, that we take that as That's a given here. And in those circumstances, does it boil down, in effect, to whether the uh, courts below abused their discretion in ordering the remedy they did? Is that what we're really looking at here? Well, I, 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 you can cast it as an abuse of discretion. I think the key point is, is the rule announced by the Court of Appeals consistent with the objectives and language, the purpose explicitly stated, and language of the Act? And I would submit that inasmuch as the purpose as stated is to create this, as I've described it, three-legged stool to elevate the quality of education, what we have created here with this rule, not simply in this case, but with the rule announced, simply saying all you have to do uh, is show that you've got found an education that is going to provide educational benefit, uh, we are going to have a lot of placements that are publicly funded, federally funded, under the Act in part, and state funded to a, to a significant degree. Well, it could well be that there is language in the opinion that goes farther than perhaps you think it should. But at bottom, you have a judgment uh, in favor of reimbursement of these parents. And do we review that on an abuse of discretion standard? I, it, it is ultimately a question of whether discretion has been abused. And Mr. Ayer, I thought your position was that if the school in which the child is placed does not meet the state standards, there's no reimbursement, period. I thought that was your position. Am I wrong? That if the, the general rule is that the education that's going to be publicly funded must meet the standards of the free appropriate. If it doesn't, there's no reimbursement to the parents. That <laughs> that's, that's the general rule, and the only exception to that, I think, is going to be. Well, not only the general rule, that's the rule you say the statute requires, as I understand it, in all cases. I believe that that's, you, you did recognize an ex exception in, in, in your reply brief, that there could be extraordinary cases, and the question was whether this was one. I, I think we do recognize the possibility that where there's a, as in Honig, where there's a substantial showing uh, that accomplishing the purposes of the Act is not going to be uh, possible or isn't, has would been prevented. Would you think this case would be any different if, before making the placement, the parents had gone to the school authorities and said, we propose to put the child in this particular school, and they said, well, you know, there are two teachers there that aren't certified, and, I'll, and we, of course, have put some of our placements there, but, but you, we want you to know there are two uncertified teachers. Would that make the case any different? It might well. I think because what that would do would be to initiate a process where the school authorities could address that issue, and it might produce something else. The point here is the parents walked away, uh, and there has not been but the cooperative process. But the school's was that the, the program at its school was sufficient. They weren't arguing about where to place the child. They also, they also understood, uh, Justice Stevens, that they have obligations under, under Burlington, that there are Burlington rights, and I think it's, it's really unreasonable to think that school districts are simply going to ignore the fact that parents have these rights. If it's possible, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve any time I have left for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Ayer. Mr. Wright? Mr. 
Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Before we get into the issues, I'd like to take a moment to review some of the factual questions that are important in responding to Mr. Ayers. In 1983, when Shannon was 13 years old, she entered the seventh grade at Timmonsville School. Her mother told the school officials that Shannon could not read and requested that she be evaluated. The school system evaluated her, concluded that she was lazy, unmotivated, a slow learner who needed to be pressured harder to work. Relying upon that, parents pressured their daughter. By February of 1985, she was 16, functionally illiterate, had become suicidal, and was severely depressed. Her parents obtained counseling for her. The counselor recommended that Shannon receive a complete psychological evaluation. The results found that Shannon had a severe learning disability and intense educational services were recommended. Following this, the school did evaluate Shannon and concurred that Shannon had a severe learning disability and was average to above average in intelligence. At a conference with parents and school personnel, an individualized educational program was presented to the parents that proposed a resource program for Shannon. This resource class would be one where Shannon was going to be placed with emotionally disturbed and mentally retarded children. The parents said that was not appropriate for Shannon. The school then offered an itinerant program. The, this program consisted of three hours of special education a week, and after a year in the 10th grade, as a 17-year-old, her reading still would have remained at the 5th grade level, and she would have fallen further and further behind her peer group. Parents contended that this... You say would have. That, that was what they projected the results of this... Absolutely. Bit. That's correct. What the school board projected. school board said, we will have you reading half... But, Five months more, after a year's worth of intense special education program. Parents said that was not inadequate, and based upon the advice of the evaluators that were working with the family and with Shannon, requested at that time a self-contained learning disabled program such as the one that was offered right down the road in Florence County School District 1. Now, Florence County has multiple school districts, and this is a case against District 4, not against Florence County itself. District or refused to consider placing Shannon in any public or private self-contained program. The parents then requested a special education due process hearing. At the August 20 due process hearing, the Cardis requested funding for either two neighboring schools or Trident Academy, a special education school accredited by the Southern, Associa me, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. The issue at the special education due process hearing and before the district court judge was whether or not District 4's itinerant program was appropriate. The trial court not only found that District 4's program was inadequate, but also found that Trident Academy provided Shannon with an excellent education. The, the petitioner uh, argues that there was a unilateral withdrawal and that the parents walked away from the process. Was there any uh, pleading in, in the lower court or ever an attempt to show in this case that if the parents had... Uh, consulted with the school district somewhat longer, there would have been a likelihood of an IEP program being drafted. Was that ever contended by the, it was, by the district? It was not an issue at either the due process hearing or the U.S. District Court. The issue was simply our itinerant program, three hours a week, is appropriate and adequate. But that contention was never made below by the state in, in, in the trial court? About the issue of trying to... There was a like that there would have been a likelihood a realistic likelihood that an IEP would have been developed if the parents had remained in the process 
Uh, no, sir. No, sir. It that was, was never contended. It was never contended. It was simply our three hours a week appropriate, and therefore, and if they prove that, if they, if they approve that the three hours a week was appropriate, then, of course, parents had no remedy under Burlington. And so that was the issue of the case. Thus, you'll see the record is fairly incomplete on a number of the other issues dealing with information about Trident. In view of the expense to the state, and it is quite expensive, what was the, how much... Per year, thirty over thirty thousand dollars was it? Over three years, it was thirty thousand. Oh, okay. So it actually, it was about the actual tuition was about six or seven thousand, only two or three thousand more than it would have cost the public school themselves. Well, in any event, it is a it is a, an expense for the state. We multiplied many times if if you uh, prevail. Why isn't it equitable to require the parents in this situation to? They did the school system. We, we are at loggerheads about the adequacy of what you are offering. And we're going to take the risk to send our child elsewhere. Tell us what schools you regard as adequate. Why shouldn't there be that burden of inquiry, as Mr. Ayers suggested? I, I, I think that's a proper burden. But and the, these parents didn't do that. They simply went off and unilaterally chose Trident. They didn't ask. They didn't ask the Florence County what institutions would you consider adequate. The, the, the record at the administrative due process hearing, not in the Court of Appeals, not in the Joint Appendix, but the due process hearing will show parents said, can our daughter go to, to Hartsville down the road, District 1, Darlington, or Trident? That was the issue at the due process hearing. Our itinerant program is not good enough for our daughter. We want her to read at the 12th grade level when she graduates. That was what the battle was all about. So parents, and that was August 20 before school had even started and Shannon had not been placed anywhere. If public What was the state's response? Three hours a week is, an, is, is appropriate and half a year's gain over a year is appropriate. Parents, reasonable parents, what else could they do? Average you said that the inquiry that Mr. Ayer said might have made this case different, in fact, happened. As in the record of the administrative... The due process hearing. The trial, the actual testimony before the administrative hearing officer. Is that record uh, part of our record? It's a, it was a part of, the force, part, a part of course, the trial court's record, a district court, U.S. district court judge. Okay. And uh, parts of the due process testimony are within the Court of Appeals Joint Appendix. I don't recall whether the, the three schools, Darlington, uh, Hartsfield, and uh, Trident Academy, are clearly in, a, in the Court of Appeals Joint Appendix or not. But that's, uh, I represent to the court that it is clearly in the due process transcript. Absolutely, I say that without doubt. But what, what is it that's in the transcript that they told them they were going to uh, place the child at Trident? No, sir. At the due process hearing, August 20. They asked whether the these three said, schools might be proper place. We want self-contained. Three hours a week is not adequate. Our daughter needs a total immersion. School system said, our program is appropriate. Three hours a week is all that your daughter needs. Parents did not want to send daughter down to Charleston to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. They wanted down the street, next school district. Florence County is, includes the, the, a major city and rural counties, and then there are school districts as a part of each one. And District 1, this is in the record, District 1 had other self-contained programs, and the trial judge referenced that the school system uh, had that available, and in fact, in the record is... Well, what is the major city, Mr. Wright? I believe it would be in Florence, South Carolina. In, in fairness, Mr. Wright, at, at that hearing, the, the issue 
between the school board and these parents was still whether three hours a week is enough or not, whether you need a self-contained program or whether three hours a week would be enough. The issue was not, well, assuming you have to go somewhere else and out of this public school, what other schools would you recommend? That, that was not the issue at the hearing. The hearing was whether three hours is enough. Well, no, it did go beyond that. The, the parents, school systems positions three hours was enough. The yeah, parents but, said but no. The school district said none of these schools is any good, not because the schools are not qualified, but simply because we, we insist that three hours a week is enough. You don't need a self-contained program, wasn't it? That's, that's correct. That's correct. In other words, they, were bl they put blinders on to anything beyond three hours a week. So there was never really put to the uh, school district the question, assuming, assuming that I don't believe you, what other schools would you recommend? I mean, if the parents That's would be correct. willing to accept the, the, the recommendations of people who already thought that three hours a week for this child was enough, uh, what other schools would you recommend? That, that question was never put to them. Uh, not quite those words, but why can't daughter go down the road to District 1, and why can't you simply pay District 1 what you would... What it would the response to that was she doesn't need any more than three hours a week. Exactly. exactly. Not, Are you through um, Mr. Wright, if uh, we had a situation where the school district or the state had an approved list of private schools uh, to which private placements could be made that met state standards, uh, do you think the parents have an obligation under this statutory scheme to uh, make a placement if they want reimbursement in one of the listed private facilities? I think they would, given the assumption as a part of your question that school system said, here is our list of approved schools. Well, and should the parents have an obligation to inquire? Do you have a list? Yes, uh, yes. Parents, certainly, if public school says, we are offering uh, resource or itinerant, we know you want self-contained day or self-contained private, we don't agree with you, but here is a list. I would submit that the parents would be obligated to evaluate the list and go back to the school system and, and uh, see if they can negotiate it. It's supposed to be a cooperative type of a, of a venture with mm -hmm. obligated, obligated to consult the list or absolutely obligated to, to remain within the schools and the list in, in choosing the placement they want. Well, needless to say, those aren't the facts in this case. And there, are, there is well, a I understood, maybe, I, I don't want to unduly complicate it. I thought your, your answer to Justice O'Connor was that they would be obligated to, in effect, to look at the list first, but they would not necessarily be obligated to send the child to one of those schools. If, if they concluded that the school, none of the schools on the list was adequate, uh, they turned out after the fact on judicial review to be correct, your position would be the same representing those parents that it is representing these, wouldn't it? That's a, a difficult question that, as, as, you, as you're perhaps aware, the Second Circuit has wrestled with, the Fifth Circuit has wrestled with, and what if this pre-existing <coughs> list, in fact, is not appropriate as a, as a matter of true fact? What do parents do? New York State, they get appropriate educations, but it's not free. They pay for it out of pocket. Or they get a free appropriation, it's not appropriate. But I, I'm not going to ask you today to, to, as a part of the Carter case, to go beyond that. Well, you yeah. don't have to ask me, but I was asking you yes, sir. Whether, <laughs> whether, your, whether your position would be the same, and I thought you were going to tell me that it would be. Well, Your Honor, I think that uh, in, in one of the Friend of the Court briefs that was filed by the Maryland Disability Law Center, they synthesized what the, the problems were with, uh, for example, there's a case, Jack Strabe, 
where uh, there was uh, schools on the list, obviously, absolutely inappropriate. And the trial district court judge said, my hands are tied. I cannot reimburse you. You, you received an appropriate education. I'm real sorry it was not free. And the, um, uh, the brief well, doesn't the principle that you contend for today untie his hands? Not if, in fact, the, if, in fact, they've consulted the list, and if, in fact, A, they have concluded that the schools are inappropriate for, for whatever the need is, and on subsequent judicial review and a reimbursement action, the trial court likewise concludes, isn't the principle that you contend for today a principle that would say they are entitled to reimbursement? I can only respond, I can't respond any better than perhaps uh, the Carrington Court did uh, in Alamo Heights saying that you have to balance on a case-by-case basis the cooperativeness of the parents, whether or not the school system truly defaulted on their obligations. Where, where does that leave the school district if you have to balance in every single case that the, there would be no certainty as to what anyone's obligations were? There would be problems with it, absolutely, and hopefully what that would then result would be school systems back, for example, with Shannon Carter in 83, when they have a learning disabled child, doing good quality work at that point, making a finding, saving dollars by providing appropriate education then, or in 85, when parents requested a more well, comprehensive... Well, that's not going to obviate the need for some sort of certainty if, if those early uh, uh, trials don't work out. Yes, sir. It's, it's uh, uh, created... Right, right, are you saying at least in, there was no list, there was no process disclosed to you, so in the absence of those, this case doesn't have to go to the further question, suppose there had been a list and it wasn't adequate. That's exactly what I'm saying here. No list. Parents had no knowledge of one. In fact, the state did not have a list, doesn't even have a, a process where a private school can a- apply to the state to see what it takes to get on this list, because there is a non-existent list. But you didn't even ask. I mean, you could have asked somebody. Couldn't you come in and ask? I, I, I don't know any list posted, but as, uh, as, as your colleague pointed out, uh, uh, even if there was a list, you'd have to ask somebody for the list, wouldn't you? Parents, I don't believe. The answer is no. But you didn't ask anybody for anything. You didn't say, you know, give us a list of schools. We, we are not going to accept your three-hour-a-week thing. We, we, we want an intensive program. Give us a list of schools. You didn't do that. Parents did not do that. Parents said, we want Trident or two other programs. Public school, I submit to you. What's the magic difference between a list or no list? The fact is you didn't ask. The burden would be to the school system when they knew parents were seeking Trident to say, well, if you want approval for Trident... Here is the procedure that has to be followed. Here are the requirements. I would submit this parents are not under a burden to inquire about a list that they would have no knowledge. They're not going to know the technical requirements of, of, of the Special Ed Act. Certainly, educators would be in a better position to do that and can say, we don't agree, but we can agree to disagree. Here is the remedy that you have to follow. Did not happen in this The burden case. of coming forward to be on the one who has the evidence. That's essentially your position. Not the one who has the, the evidence, the one who's in the better position, the, the one right. who's, who's educated. Right. That, 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 that would be my position. So, Even though they're still taking the position that you don't have a right to go to any school. You, you expect them to come forward. You don't have a right to go to any other school because three hours is enough. Well, On the other hand, if you want to go to another school, here's a... Here, it, it, it becomes a... So un- this is contrary to human nature. It, they're not going to give you a list while they're still contesting the substance of whether you have a right to go anywhere else. And if they don't give a list and parents then obtain a placement that later determined, is determined to be appropriate and public schools program was inadequate, the school is a master of their own destiny, they saw fit not to provide this list, then the parents should not be held accountable for that. Parents should still be able to receive an appropriate education that is also free. I think once you, once you can see that you're bound by a list that the school posts, your, your, your case becomes a lot weaker. I don't see a whole lot of difference between 
uh, a school district with a list and a school district without a list? I'm not here today arguing against lists per se. Uh, but I know that. That's my point. I think that's uh, a difficult part of the entire case. If the school system already had a list in existence and had already furnished the list to the parents and provided them with procedures to seek approval or try to, that, this would be a different case. Absolutely no question at all about that. Well, isn't there, just refresh my recollection about one aspect of the facts, didn't, it wasn't Trident used by the school districts in, in other parts of the state as a place to send the children? That's correct. Trident Academy had uh, three other South Carolina youngsters that were placed there by South Carolina school systems and paid for approval in South Carolina case by case. And you'll also see this issue of certified teachers. If you look at the South Carolina race, the last page of the petitions appendix allows for non-certified teachers to teach special ed. Exactly what they're complaining and condemning Trident for. In essence, uh, when Chen graduated, she was reading at the 12th grade level. <coughs> the education was appropriate. It's not been free at this point. And we ask that you provide Chen with a free appropriation also. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wright. Ms. Wax, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, under the broad remedial provision of this statute, a judge is allowed to award any remedy that he deems appropriate. And as this Court said in the Burlington case, appropriate means appropriate in light of the purpose of this statute. We think that the answer to this case and the answer to many of the questions that the Justices have, have posed today comes in asking the right question. And that question is, what is the purpose of this statute? What is its aim? Why did Congress enact the IDEA? Congress enacted the IDEA to provide a basic floor of educational opportunity for disabled children, to ensure that those children received an education that was calculated to enable them to receive benefit. And in deciding what remedies are appropriate, we believe that basic equitable principles dictate that the legal standard should be no more onerous and no more complicated than are absolutely necessary to effectuate the statutory purpose. Now, with respect to the questions that Justice Ginsburg and others have raised about whether parents have to make reasonable inquiries or reasonable efforts to comply with the particulars of Section 1401, or whether they have to choose a school from a list, the position of the United States is that no such per se requirements should be imposed as a rigid matter. There should be no requirement as such that parents make inquiries. And the reason for this, first of all, is that the statute contains no such requirement. There is no explicit mandate that parents make inquiries, seek information, confer and consult endlessly before they may challenge the IEP proposed and receive a remedy. Of course, they always have an incentive to ask for a list anyway or to select a school from a list that is provided, a very considerable incentive, don't they? That is to say, if the school district has provided a list, you know that you can get reimbursement so long as you pick one of those schools. Well, it certainly increases your chances of getting reimbursement, Justice Scalia, but part of our point is that just because you choose a school from a list doesn't mean that it's, you satisfy the substantive showing that it's appropriate for your child. Who, who would contest it? Certainly the school district wouldn't be able to contest it if the, if the uh, school was on the, on the list. 
On the contrary, Your Honor, I think they very well could contest it because they don't want to provide reimbursement. And just because it's on the list, although it satisfies the particulars of the definition of a FAPE, it might not meet the substantive standard under Raleigh for I your they, child. They would still contest the exactly. IEP and, and all of that, but they, but they certainly couldn't come forward and say this is a no-good school. They couldn't come forward and say it doesn't comply with the procedural and formal requirements, but under Raleigh, they could certainly try and come forward and say this school is inappropriate and that it doesn't provide the sort of education that your child needs. Well, they could continue to contest their own inadequacy. Correct, and they could contest that too, and those are the two elements of the inquiry. Now, it's important to realize that every time you set up a requirement like the parent has to make inquiries, the parent has to look at a list, that requirement comes at a cost. It comes at a cost to the parents and the children seeking a remedy. And that's because although it may seem simple to ask parents to pick up the phone and call the school district, as this court recognized in Burlington, the reply that they're likely to get is, we'll get back to you, we'll look into it, call back next week when the right person is here. And that produces delay. And when there's delay, the parents are in a quandary because each day that the child is in an inappropriate and unsatisfactory setting is a day that's lost to the education of that child. And it also produces uncertainty because the parents ask themselves how much of an effort is enough, how much of an official response is sufficient, when can we cut our losses and move our child, and all of those uncertainties get played out at the remedial phase of the statute when the judge is asked to consider how much effort is enough, whether what the school district did is equitably sufficient. We're going back now to the setting in the school system and not when we're in court talking about the parents' choice in the school system, isn't the thrust of the act that the parents and the school authorities should be, should be trying to work with each other to the maximum extent possible rather than uh, an incentive for the, for the parents to pull that child out of the public school system quickly and put it in some superior private school? Your Honor, that overstates the statutory interest in having parents and school districts consult and confer. That interest in mutual cooperation is fully exhausted by coming together to try and formulate an IEP in the first instance. Once that proposal is signed and sealed and proposed, then under the statute, parents have no open-ended obligation to consult and confer without end, and in fact, as this court recognized in Burlington, to incorporate such a requirement would be very much to the disadvantage of parents because the school district always has the upper hand in this situation. On the contrary, under Section 1415 of the Act, the parents have an immediate right to challenge the adequacy of the IEP, to challenge any aspect of the school district's proposal at the administrative level, first by directing the challenge to the school district itself, then with appeal to the state, and finally judicial review. So I think petitioners vastly overstate the statutory interest in consultation and cooperation. And if it was, in fact, if, it, if their proposal was adopted, it would work to the detriment of the parents and the children. So the point is that the requirement that parents choose from a list, which vastly reduces their options for providing their child's education, and that they inquire of the school district, creates tremendous obstacles and complications to their receiving relief. And the question is, the equitable question is, do those added complications come at some benefit to the effectuation of the statutory purpose? And the answer has to be no. The statutory purpose is fully effectuated 
when a judge determines whether in a particular case the education that the child received in the parent's chosen institution was an appropriate education within the meaning of Raleigh. That is, it accomplished the purpose of the act, which was to provide a basic floor of educational opportunity. And if the education lives up to that standard, then consideration of, of whether the school's on a list or whether inquiries were made or whether certain formalities were complied with really become superfluous. They become beside the point. Uh, and in that case, it would, it would effectuate the statutory purpose to allow reimbursement, and it certainly would defeat the statutory purpose to deny reimbursement. So you are, in effect, asking us to um, disapprove, what was it, the Second Circuit? Which, which was the decision that said Tucker. you have to pick from the list? Yes, we are, Your Honor. We think that as a hard and fast, rigid requirement, it doesn't hold water. It may come in at the very end of the inquiry of whether the education is appropriate. It could be a factor in a case where the child didn't clearly benefit from the education, where the child didn't make educational progress, and then the judge is thrown back on certain indicators of educational quality with respect to the private school that was chosen. And then, then the judge might look at things such as how well-trained were the teachers, uh, how does this school compare to other schools, did the parents have ready at hand an alternative, which looks like it might have been better than the alternative that was chosen. None of those considerations would come in in this case, because here there was clear benefit to the child. And we think that when the child clearly benefits, that's really essentially all that the judge needs to know. Well, now, Ms. Wax, do you think there's no limit at all here? Suppose you're in a community where there are a number of private schools that could do the job. And one of them has an annual tuition of $30,000 a year. It's really a Cadillac situation. And another school that maybe could do the job has a tuition of 10000 a year. Now, the parent is entirely free to choose the most expensive, and the school district has to pick up the cost? Well, we don't... And that's your view? There, there no. are no uh, cautionary concerns here at all? We would distinguish between the availability of some reimbursement, okay, which we think should not be affected by the alternatives that might be available, but should only be determined by whether this school that the parents chose meets the appropriate well, standard. Think, the under the statutory scheme, a court could, could deny full reimbursement? No, we do not. We think the court could limit the amount of reimbursement. Well, that's what I'm asking you. You do? How? Uh, on what authority? On equitable grounds, because uh, it, considering that, that the, the substantive standard of appropriateness is really a standard that sets a floor. And therefore, the court could say, well, since that floor is, is abided by, we can limit the amount to what the floor would cost. Thank you, Ms. Wax. Mr. Ayer, you saved one minute. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Ayer, I hate to take part of it, but, but it's an important point to me. This list that you would make up and submit to the parents is just a list as to schools that meet the state educational standards. It isn't a list of those schools that don't charge more than you're willing to pay, is it? Well, we weren't proposing to make up a list. I didn't. But, uh, but if someone were to make a list that reflected state standards, it would only reflect state standards. It not, not, not cost. Well, that list would not. And you could have another list that would. But uh, three points I'd like to make very quickly. One is that I, I must take exception to the proposition that the purpose of the act is to provide an appropriate education, as that word is defined in Rowley, uh, the purpose of the act is to provide a FAPE, a free appropriate public education, which is, I think, a good bit more than an appropriate education, which is one that simply confers some benefit. Uh, second, 
I would also disagree with the proposition that the obligation uh, and the intention of the statute that there be cooperation ends as soon as the IEP is signed. Indeed, it's a continuing process that's intended to go on into the future. Um, and I guess your time, your time thank is you, Your expired, Honor. Mr. Aaron. The case is submitted.